0: Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33 as we continue our through the Bible study. We made it, praise the Lord, to a new section, really, of Ezekiel uh, Wednesday night. Um, And really, chapters 33 to the end sort of spark this new section about the coming glory. These chapters start to hint, and then fairly overtly uh, tell us what the millennial kingdom is going to be about and the second coming of Christ and the um, and also some some you know events that are going to happen in the world right at or before the rapture of the church and so there's some really powerful and important places coming up in our study and we really begin chapter 33 with sort of a new um, a new challenge to kind of to see what's happening in the world. uh, But but before we do that, you know, the first part of chapter 33, really there's two main sections of chapter 33. There's a a word to the watchman, and then there's a word or a warning, I should say, to the wicked. Uh, First, the word to the watchman. That's gonna be really verses one all the way through verse 10. Let's take a look. The word to the watchman. It says in verse one, again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if he sees the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned if the sword come and take any person from among the the people them, uh, he, the watchman, is taken away in his iniquity but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee, a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, thus ye speak, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? The first 10 verses, a word to the watchman. Of course, the watchman in this case is none other than Ezekiel himself. And interesting, um, the Lord says, when I bring a sword upon the land, the watchman's supposed to blow the trumpet and let everybody know, hey, watch out, be warned, be ready, get out of Dodge or whatever you're supposed to do. But if the watchman doesn't do that, then it's his fault if people get killed or, and it's on his head. But if the people blow off the, you know, the sounding of the horn and say, yeah, yeah Ezekiel or whoever, that we don't really like him and he doesn't give us nice messages or whatever, then it's on their own head. Their blood will be on their own head. Notice verse seven, it says there that he was to kind of do simply two things, hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. The Lord says, man, I'm coming. And you're supposed to hear the word at my mouth. That's the, the first part and notice the order, hear the word from the Lord, and then warn the people about what was coming. And that's really what was supposed to be happening. Now, you might say, well, Brett, that's great. Well, what watchman in his right mind would not blow the trumpet? If he sees the sword coming, and he, does, he decides not to blow the trumpet, like who, who does that? Well, frankly, um, there were a bunch of people in Ezekiel's time, and there's a bunch of people in our time. What do you mean, Brett? Well, here's the deal. In Ezekiel's time, do you remember those prophets so-called that were supposed to be watching and warning the people and giving this, hear the word of the Lord and speak the word of the Lord to the people. That's what the prophets were supposed to do. But in Jeremiah's time and in Ezekiel's time, there were prophets so-called going around saying, thus saith the Lord, but they didn't really hear from the Lord at all. They were just making stuff up. They were talking about things that didn't even really matter. But he says, I need you to be a watchman, Ezekiel. And when you hear my words speaking to the people, and then if you do that, then you're, you're off the hook. You've done your job. And then it's up to the people whether they're gonna listen uh, and take guard or position or save themselves. It's up to them. If they don't do anything about it, then the blood's on their head. Okay, Brett, the false prophets of Ezekiel's day, but who's doing that today? Well, it kind of reminds me of a story. There was once a very dangerous seacoast um, off the shores of a very dangerous coast. And ships would often, you know, in the fog and in the storms and what have you, could be pushed into this one particular coast where there were all kinds of dangerous rocks, where the ships would be crashed up against the rocks. And, and they would break into pieces and the sailors would often drown. Um, so there was a couple young guys that were, you know, in physical... Great condition, and they saw what was happening. So they set up a little, sort of a little shack, a little lean-to. Really, it wasn't anything fancy. And got a little dingy, and they would be sort of a watch, looking out over the the dangerous coast. And when there was a shipwreck, they would row out with all their might and try to rescue as many people as they could. And they would, you know, bring them to the shore and light a big bonfire and get, get people dry and warmed up. And they they started saving many many people from many ships that were crushed against the rocks and. And, and it was an amazing thing. And, and some of the people that had been saved, they were thankful to these two guys, their little dingy boat, uh, saving people. And they thought, you know, we need to do more about this. And so they actually put some of their, some of the people that had been rescued, put some of their money together and made a, an actual rescue station. No longer just the lean-to and the bonfire. It was a rescue station. It had like a soup kitchen and it had a place to, a big fireplace where you could warm yourself and changing rooms and showers. It was amazing. And these two guys, they'd take their little boat out and rescue. And, and the guy said, man, that boat's not good enough. And they, they got him actually a real rescue boat, a nice one. Um, and, and they took the old dinghy and they actually mounted it over the mantle on the fireplace in the rescue station because it was such a great memory of all the lies that had been saved by the little dinghy boat that they had, the little wooden one. But now they had some high tech stuff and man, more and more people being saved. But then as the time went on, people, it was actually kind of a fun place to be. There, you know, you'd rescue some people and they'd get more rescuers and people kind of helping out. But it, it started becoming a sort of the cool place to hang out because, man, you know, it had a fireplace and they food and people just kind of hang out. And, 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 and eventually, it became sort of like a club. People that have been rescued and rescuers, and they just sit around telling stories about what they did back, you know, years earlier in their rescues, and eventually it became really, um, they, they added on to it to make it even more comfortable. And, and eventually they even got to this weird place where they'd rescue people, but they didn't want the people tracking mud into their rescue station. Um, as they'd sit, they're drink, drinking their hot cocoa by the fire. And it was kind of a nuisance. All these people you know, needed rescue. So they would, they would have them you know, clean up outside and dry off and eventually they could come in. But, but eventually even that was sort of uncomfortable. And, and pretty soon in time, they weren 't rescuing people anymore; it was just a country club, fun station to go and drink some cocoa and then tell old stories. The two original rescuers were getting older, but they went over the fireplace, grabbed their old dinghy boat, and went down the, the shore of the coast just you know several hundred yards and set up a lean to and a bonfire, and started rescuing souls from the crashed ships once again. But as the story goes, the same thing happened again they They built a bigger rescue station, and it became a country club. And now, on the seacoast of that dangerous shore, there's all kinds of beautiful country clubs, but no one's saving the people that are drowning in the ocean. That's a little parable of what's happening today. It's what happens. We, uh, particularly the prophets of the Old Testament, perhaps the Bible teachers, pastors, preachers of today are supposed to be speaking the word of the Lord in a day that's extremely dangerous. We're living in dangerous times, but the watchmen are not blowing the trumpet. We're talking about the country club stuff, how to balance your checkbook and, and how to be more comfortable and you know uh, all these you know, progressive Christian doctrines that are creeping into the church and as something that's so wonderful and warm and fuzzy. Meanwhile, there's people going straight to hell. And the church sometimes, sad to say, if we're not careful, we can be more about community. It's all about community. No, it's not all about community. I don't say, I say it like that because that's the way everybody says <laughs> Yes, it's all the no. Uh, I don't get that when people say, it's all about community. No, it's not. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and create community. Yeah. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the, throwing the life-saving buoy out there to, to rescue souls that need to be saved. Um, and we need to be busy about that and rescue as many souls as possible. Um, and, and so some churches, I think, have grabbed the dinghy off the mantle and have moved away from the, you know, some of the stuff that's been you know just more of the fluffy stuff. And, and, and people are, in this day and age, man, there's so many lost people that need to hear the, the warning. And that's really what the watchman was supposed to do in Ezekiel's time. And that's what we should be doing. It's not just pastors and preachers. You're part of that team that should be the watchman Watching on the wall to see what's coming and warning and letting people know that there's salvation and that that there's danger really coming from the unsaved person. They need to know what's going on. and And by the way, you know, there's several scriptures that we learn about that. In fact, listen to this in First Corinthians in the New Testament. You can jot this down in your notes. But First Corinthians fourteen verse eight, Paul preaching, you know, to the Corinthian church, which is in real trouble. They were the country club church kind of and needed all kinds of help and correction all the time. Listen to what what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 14.8. He says, for if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? In other words, you know, the trumpeter, the watchman is supposed to make a very clear sound. And his point was, you know, the, 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 the people that were supposed to be watching the Corinthian church what were they doing? They are making unclear sounds. Was it like a kazoo? Oh, danger's going. Mm. Like what, what, was the, what was the sound? Did you hear something? Uh, I don't know, I didn't hear anything. And then people going to their despair and destruction. The clear sound of the trumpeter, that's what we need right now in the church of Jesus Christ. And you and I need to be clear. What is that? Well, you know, that's the problem today. We, we've left clear, just solid teaching for, you know, warm, fuzzy stuff. Here's an example of sounding the trumpet really clearly, and I'm just gonna say it. Um, If you are not saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. That's a clear statement right there. Brad, it's not very nice to say that. Who who cares? Uh, You Say it as nicely as you can, but it's still true, whether you said it nicely or meanly. We shouldn't say it meanly. We should say it out of love, but it's still something people need to know. And there's churches today, that are saying, oh, hell doesn't actually exist, or it's not eternal. Or it's not, you know, it's just a place where really, really, really bad people like Adolf Hitler go. But you know, like there's various churches that have left the doctrine of hell and just kind of said, well, we don't like that part of the Bible. Let's rip that part out and throw it away. But, uh, but we sure like talking about, you know, the warm fuzzy, how to uh, you, know, uh, you know manage your checkbook or whatever. It's so funny what we do. Uh, it's actually tragic. The sound of the trumpet needs to be clear and somehow we've mistaken that for rudeness or something like that. It'd be like if you're in battle in the, in the ancient times and the watchman sees the Babylonians coming with their swords drawn and they're gonna just crush the city and the trumpeter goes, did you do something? Well, I was just thinking about letting you know, there's some things you should probably be thinking about or praying about, you know, and uh, what, what should we be praying about? Well, you know, there could be tough times ahead and you know, eh, but I don't wanna make you nervous or make you ner- Don't be afraid. Um, uh, and I don't wanna to be too heavy. Like I don't wanna be a you know, Debbie Downer. No, no, the watchman has to go, Oh, they're coming and they're gonna kill you. Let's get out of Dodge. You know, that's, that's the idea, the watchman. Uh, and sadly, sadly, we've lost that edge, I think, largely in the church. We need to make a sound of a clear trumpet. You know, it's not just Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Paul said this about his ministry when he was talking to the elders from the church at Ephesus. Uh, it's Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Let me read this to you. Paul says, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Implication, some people didn't share all the counsel um, He says, take heed therefore to yourselves, to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, talking to the elders of the church, to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, Paul says, when I leave, there shall be grievous wolves that will enter in, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, men shall arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. You know what is so important about this is, is it's not just the pastor, it's the elders of the church. That's who Paul's talking to. i have not shunned to declare unto do the full council, the whole council. And remember there's wolves that wanna come in and wolves that wanna you know, eat the sheep and have them for lamb chops. Um, and, and he says, don't, don't be afraid elders, You know, to watch and warn. And, and um, you know, it's interesting because churches, you know, we can become very comfortable in our community and all our friends that we have. And I know sometimes we even can longingly sort of remember the good old days when things were simple. But, you know, I think the days we're living in right now are some of the most exciting times we've ever lived. Um, this is the time where we see, if you would, the Babylonians coming over the mountain uh, as we see what's going on in the world today. Um, This isn't a time to be all about community. This is a time to be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ and pointing people to the salvation that God so graciously offers. Um, So important to know this. Um, And so this is the watchman on the wall, really. And this is what Ezekiel's, you know, being told by the Lord, don't be afraid to blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. You know, a word to the watchman to be a faithful watchman. I love that. What an important message for us even tonight. But after the word to the watchman, then we have the warning to the wicked Uh, in verses 11, really uh, uh, through the rest of the chapter. He says in verse 11, "'Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, "'I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, "'but that the wicked turn from his way and live. "'Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, "'for why will you die, O house of Israel?' The word turn ye, turn ye, you can also put in there, repent, repent. That's the same idea, just repent. Turn around, do it about face, change your mind, go the opposite direction. That's what, that's what you know, the Lord is telling Ezekiel to speak. And this word or warning to the wicked is to repent um, uh, you know, from their evil deeds. And, and, and I love this, it's good, a good reminder that the Lord has no pleasure uh, in the death of the wicked. You know, um, that's something just to remember, you know, that, that the Lord doesn't uh, enjoy, you know, punishing the world. Um, some people think God's this great big cosmic killjoy just looking for people he can crush. But we know that's not really true at all. In fact, if you remember what he says, even in the New Testament, Second uh, Peter 3, 9, talking about the end times and the destruction of the world. In Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord says, the Lord is not slack or lazy concerning his, his promise of coming as men, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us usward. Listen, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night. Um, you see, this idea of the Lord delaying his coming and people scoffing like Peter talks about, that he, the Lord, you know, the Lord is not slack or lazy concerning the coming, but he, but he is being patient, long-suffering for the unbeliever to, to, be, to repent, um, and, and don't forget though, the, the judgment is still coming. Just because the Lord, it grieves him to judge humanity, it's still coming. The wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. Don't ever make a mistake of, you know, mistaking the Lord's patience and long suffering with um, apathy or not caring about the wicked or, or evil deeds. Very important stuff. So this warning to the wicked, man, don't be thinking the Lord enjoys punishing, but the punishment is coming. So turn from your evil deeds. Verse 12, therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness, neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust in his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousnesses shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Again, When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die. If he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restore the pledge, give again that he had robbed, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live and he shall not die. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Now, if you're a Bible student, this is not new to you. Thank the Lord. This is one of the glorious doctrines of imputed righteousness uh, where where even he he makes such a great case here. This almost sounds New Testament. Do you know what I mean? How he's saying, even if you're righteous, you're not righteous. Even your righteousness is not really righteous. That's kind of what he's saying. And there's some other passages. You might jot some notes down next to these scriptures. Isaiah 64, 6. We looked at this a few months back. It says, but we are all as unclean things, And all of our righteousness are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities are like the wind that have taken us away. Isaiah even agrees with, you know, Ezekiel saying, all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag. Um, Man, that's a a brutal description of, of what is true. And so, you know, it forces us to remember, well, how are we declared righteous? And there's only one way. It's not for you to be really, really, really good. Because even your best behavior that you can ever, you know, conjure up is not good enough. Um, do you want to know where the greatest lesson on some of the greatest doctrines of the Bible, in my opinion, are? If you want to really hone in on your doctrines, uh, one of the passages I would refer you to is Romans chapter 3. Like if you could become sort of an expert on just this little section of Romans chapter, in fact, let me just turn there um, and uh, read it to you because it's so important. Romans 3, you might just say 3 verses 19 through 26. This little chunk is, it's, it's a bit of a mouthful, but man, when you read it, it's just like some of the most glorious truth in all the world. Right here, check this out. It's Romans 3 verses 19 through 26. Listen to this. Paul says, now we know that what things soever the law says it saith to them that are under the law. And every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, we're all guilty and nobody can say a word about it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what Galatians talked about. The, the law is the schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus. Uh, the only thing the law does is shows you what a wretched, miserable sinner you really are. Um, that's what the purpose of the law is. It still serves a purpose to show you your need for you know saving. But then he goes on and says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest or, or be made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all that are upon them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now listen to this being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed throughout the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Oh, I love this. So if you didn't get anything else out of that, you're hearing all these fancy words, justification, redemption, propitiation, um, uh, remission. You're hearing all these words and you're like, what? Well, all those good things happen to the person that does what? It says here, that believes in Jesus. Verse 26, I love that. The simplicity of the gospel, but the power that's behind it is, is incredible. And we've talked about these doctrines of, of you know, justification, just as if we never sinned. Propitiation is the satisfaction of the requirement. It's like, you know, he, you owe a debt that you couldn't pay. He paid the debt you could, you, you know, that you know, he did not owe. He paid your debt. That's the, you know, the, the propitiation is he substitutionarily satisfied the requirements for you to go to heaven when he died on the cross. Man, I love that, propitiation. Redemption is the buying back or the purchasing back. He paid the price, not with the blood of bulls, rams, or goats, or silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. Jesus paid the redeeming price, according to Peter. But these are the doctrines, and it's basically saying that you can't do righteousness by being good. No one can do that. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the doctrines of righteousness and propitiation and Redemption and justification—it's all built in there. So, if you want to be an expert on these things, man, do a deep dive study in these. We've done whole sermons and teachings on just those—you know—few verses. If you want to look them up in Romans three verses sixteen, pardon me, verses nineteen through twenty-six. Well, be that as it may, uh, as it turns out, the Old Testament supports the New. (laughs) Um, You don't see the—you know—some people say I like the God of the New Testament more than the Old. Uh, that shows that they really don't understand that the Old Testament is brutal, but it's that law and it's that thing that points us back to righteousness through Christ. Um, And you need the Old Testament to do its work. And Ezekiel is dabbling in New Testament themes that even your righteousness is never gonna measure up. That's what he's saying here in this section, verses 12 through 16. But in verse 17 of 33, he goes on and says, Yet the children of thy people say, the way of the Lord is not equal. But as for them, their way is not equal. When the righteous turneth from his righteousness and committeth iniquity, he shall even die thereby. But if the white, uh, wicked turn from his wickedness and do that which is lawful and right, he shall live thereby. Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. O ye house of Israel, I will judge you every one after his ways. Um, boy, we're talking a lot today about equality. And it's an interesting discussion. And one of the things that if you kind of are, are a, a sort of a student of, of equity and equality and the discussion that's going on in the world today, it's anything but equal or uh, fair. But, you know, you might say, but Brett, there's a lot of times in history where things weren't fair and we need to balance things out, you know. Uh, and um, the problem is, humanity's been out of whack as far as fairness forever. So bad has it been, we don't even recognize fair, fairness when we see it. But as it turns out, the Bible teaches us that God is fair, God is fair. Um, <laughs> it's always interesting when people try to exact fairness out of other people, because um, you know we're, we never really agree on what's fair, humanity never has agreed. On what's fair. Um, I remember, do you guys remember learning about Andrew Carnegie? You know, Carnegie Steel. He was famous for um, being super, super wealthy, but he uh, was the guy, you know, he was very, you know, philanthropic. He would give a lot of his money. In fact, there's still to this day a lot of the old libraries and towns all across the United States, the Carnegie libraries. Almost every little town in America has a Carnegie library, and he paid for them all. Uh, it was kind of an amazing thing because he wanted people to read and have library books available. Um, kind of a neat thing. But, but when, when he was wealthy, a socialist came uh, and said, you are just a greedy rich person and you need to equally distribute. If you were, if you were anywhere near what you should be, um, you should equally distribute your wealth uh, across the world. And he said, okay. And he, and he did, got out a, you know, a, a piece of paper and started doing a little math just for a second. And he kind of calculated his own personal wealth and all that. And then he reached in his pocket and pulled out 16 cents and handed it. and said, you'll be the first one. I'll give you 16 cents. That's your portion <laughs> Six, of his wealth. if you divided it all over the world? It was 16 cents. But you know, it's a funny thing when we try to divvy up wealth and, and you know, equalize and all that stuff. The world tends to really get that wrong every time. Um, And that's where, if you really want true justice, we need to put our trust in the Lord. And the Lord is the one who's fair. That's what these Jews are saying, he's not fair. It's not fair what's happening, Uh, you know, but the Lord says, actually, your way is not equal. Your way is not fair. But I'm gonna judge you, verse 20, and that's gonna be fair. Um, Be careful, by the way, if you ask for fairness. Um, I remember hearing a guy say, what we need is more justice in this world. And I remember the Lord just kind of put it on my heart, actually, I hope we never get that. Why would you say that, Brett? I'll tell you why. You know, you see Bill Cosby released today. Did you guys see that? Uh, you know, the Supreme Court of, what was it? Uh, Pennsylvania, I think it was, yeah. that kind of said, uh, sorry, there was a, a mistake. The prosecuting attorney made a mistake. And so it was really not a fair trial. And so he's walked free. Uh, he's at home tonight. Um, even though, you know, he did admit to drugging women and, you know, having sex with them and all that stuff. Um, he's, he's home free because of a glitch on the, you know, and you kind of wonder, is that fair for the 60 women that actually accused him of something that happened? I um, is that fair? Uh, you know, we don't see what's fair in this world, but do you know that the Lord is, the, is truly the great equalizer? It's all gonna come out in the wash in the end, somehow, some way. And when we see what the Lord does, we'll all say righteous and true are his judgments. That's what we'll say. Well, the Lord says, I will judge every one of you after your way." Um, now, good news, that's true for the rebellious, but to the person who repents and believes in Jesus, he, we are judged according to his righteousness. Uh, that's the beautiful doctrine of imputed righteousness. Well, all that to say, verse 21 goes on, and it came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity in the 10th month. Now, we kind of move into more of a story mode just for a second, okay? E- you know, Ezekiel saying, here's something that happened. He said, you know, in the 12th year of our captivity in the 10th month, in the 5th day of the month, that one had come and escaped out of Jerusalem, came to me saying, this, uh, the city is smitten. Now the hand of the Lord was upon me in the evening afore he was escaped came. And I had opened my mouth until he came to me in the morning and my mouth was opened and I was no more dumb. Now, if you're just joining us, this makes no sense to you at all. You're like, what? What? He he, he thinks he's dumb? Um, Well, we're talking about not speaking. But do you remember in chapter 24, right around verse 27, um, the Lord told him not to say anything more, to be silent? Well, if you remember, he was supposed to be silent until Jerusalem was crushed. So this escapee from Jerusalem comes running up 450 miles away. <laughs> he runs into Ezekiel and he says, uh, the city of Jerusalem is crushed. Now after seven years, Ezekiel can talk again. Uh, so keep in mind, this, all, all this isn't necessarily in order. The book of Ezekiel doesn't really fall out in order perfectly. But, um, but somewhere along the way, Ezekiel was silent for seven years, dumb. And he was supposed to be silent until the crushing of Jerusalem. Then he could speak again. So this is just marking that moment when the the, messenger came running in and said, Jerusalem is crushed. And now he gets to speak again. Then, verse 23, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, they that inhabit those wastes of the land of Israel speak, saying, Abraham was one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land is given for our inheritance. What's going on? The Jews in Babylon are saying, come on, e- you know, Ezekiel. And now, by the way, everything Ezekiel said up to this point has been proven true. The Jews are having to go, well, Ezekiel kind of knows what he's talking about. Jerusalem was crushed. And so they come and say, come on. They're trying to logically argue with Ezekiel. Come on, the Lord should give us land. If, if he gave it to one guy, Abraham, then why wouldn't he give us back our land? And, and, and the Lord's now gonna answer the Jews. Have you ever had, um, I I can't think of a great example, but when your children come up and you sense that there's a little bit of, well, a lot of entitlement, and they try to make a logical argument, but they don't really have logical brains yet. You parents know what I'm talking about. They come up and they try to reason with you, but it's like, uh, (laughs) and you can dominate them because they're still three um, in, in the area of logic and reason. Well, this is, this is kind of what's going on here. The three-year-old Jerusalem uh, Jews are all saying, come on, we should get our land back. This isn't fair. You know, it was given to Abraham. Why wouldn't it be given? There's more of us than there was Abraham. But then the Lord, he fires back some pretty heavy stuff. Verse 25. Wherefore, the Lord says to Ezekiel, thus saith the Lord God, you eat with the blood, you lift up your eyes toward idols and shed blood, and shall you possess the land? You stand upon your sword, you work abomination and you defile everyone his neighbor's wife and you shall possess the land. Say thou thus unto them, thus saith the Lord God, as I live, surely they that are in the wastes shall fall by the sword and him that is in the open field will I give to the beasts to be devoured. And they that be in the forts and in the caves shall die of the pestilence for I will lay, uh, lay the land most desolate and the pomp of her strength shall cease. And the mountains of Israel shall, pass, uh, shall be desolate, that none shall pass through. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, when I have laid the land most desolate because of all their abominations, which they have committed. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like when the parent, you know, the kid's like, yeah, what are you doing, mom? Why?" Are you doing? I'll give you a reason. Remember when your mom said, I'll give you a reason. <laughs> this is the Lord doing that kind of in a loving parent way. Uh, I'll give you a reason why you're not gonna get the land because you've looked to the idols. You've been worshiping idols. You've shed blood of innocent people in your streets. Like the Lord just indicts them one point after the other and says, because of that, your land, while you're in Babylon, it's gonna start to go desolate. One of the more profound things, and we've talked about this before in prophecy updates and stuff, but um, one of the real amazing Bible prophecies is not only that the Jews would be scattered all over the world for a couple thousand years and eventually regathered, but another thing that would happen is the land flowing with milk and honey of the book of you know, Exodus, uh, when the Jews were you know, making their way to the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, became one of the most barren lands in all the world. Uh, How did it become barren? It's really the Lord's doing. He said, I'm gonna make your land barren and the mountains of Israel shall be desolate. Um, And this used to be the land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, that happened for a long period of time, the desolation of the land of Israel. Um, And uh, again, I'll refer you to Mark Twain's writings. He, one of the funny things about Mark Twain is he didn't do much for Bible stuff. But for Bible prophecy buffs, Mark Twain did us a real service because he traveled the Holy Land of Israel for over a year. And he went from the very top of Israel down to the bottom of Israel and went everywhere in between in a year's period. And he, he wrote extensively in his colorful language that he often used about how desolate and barren the, the whole land of Israel was. He said you can scarcely find a twig or a, or a plant that was alive. In fact, you could barely find a person walking in the desert. Uh, There were just a few Bedouin tents, you know, uh, in the land of Israel. It was totally desolate. And he writes about this just over a hundred years ago. Um, What happened to the land flowing with milk and honey? It became cursed by God. And there were a few events in history that made that happen when the Ottoman Turks taxed the trees in Israel. Um, Do you remember what they did? The Jews outsmarted the Turks. They said, if you're going to tax the trees we have on our property, (coughs) they sawed down all their trees. It, it was so big of a change that you know, uh, climatologists have said that it changed the climate of Israel because the trees were so gone that it just messed the whole thing up and the soil erosion. Um, there's places you can still drive in Israel today where you just see nothing but soil erosion uh, not a twig or a weed or anything in the Negev desert. But in the mountains of Israel, it used to be a beautiful lush place and it was, became barren. Now, Uh, I need to point something out about this, that the Lord said in the last days, I'll make you fruitful again. And that's one of the things we're seeing the land come to life profoundly today. Uh, Israel is one of the top fruit producers in the world. And by the way, some of the best fruit comes from Israel. Um, There's, oh man, I still don't have time for this, but I I have to say it. Um, One of the reasons if you go to Israel and the fruit, you'll just say, why is this the sweetest tasting fruit that I've ever had, like like it even beats like Hawaii and some, some, you know, like when you have that sweet fruit from the tropical. The reason scientists say the fruit in Israel is so sweet is because there's a certain salinity in the, in the soil throughout all the land of Israel. And it's actually not a, it, you know, that used to be kind of was perceived as not great for growing things. And it helped make the land desolate. If you go down to the Dead Sea, you have the Salty Sea where they harvest salt out of the Dead Sea because it's just so salty, everything's salty. Not only that, the Emperor Hadrian back uh, you know, um, a few hundred, or 150 years AD, he salted some of the Jews' farmlands, like literally poured huge piles of salt on their farmland so that they couldn't grow in their farms anymore. So like there's natural reasons there's salt on the land, there's mean-spirited Roman reasons why there's salt spread out on the land. But as it turns out, the Jews, with their drip irrigation systems and their fertilizers and their science, in modern times, they have made the land come to life again. And here's what science has actually proven. The reason the fruit is, doing so, is so sweet, it has to overcompensate uh, the, the, the fruit itself. Because of the salinity in the soil, it comes out overcompensation with the sweetness. I guess it's what, fructose in there? That kinda is, so that when you eat an apple or a fruit from the land, a banana, it's like amazing. Um, And it's kinda cool. Uh, I'm not a big you know fruit and vegetable guy, but in Israel, pass the bananas, man. I love that over there, that's some good stuff right there. Uh, Bible bananas is what I call them. (laughs) But anyway, uh, this this is what would happen. The land would be made desolate. You can check that box. That did happen. And we're starting to see now the coming around of the land in our modern times of fulfillment of more prophecy. Um, Verse 30, also thou son of man, children of thy people still are are talking against thee by the walls in the doors of the houses and speak one to another. Every one is brother saying, come I pray you and hear, what is the word that cometh from the Lord? And they come unto thee as the people cometh And they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them, for with their mouth they show much love, but with their hearts they go after their own covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do not do them. And lo, when this cometh to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet hath been among them. Ezekiel, here's this word. Um, you're really popular right now, Ezekiel, um, because you prophesied stuff and it all came to pass. Jerusalem was crushed. Everything you said was right. Now the people are gathering and they're saying, we want to hear what you have to say. And, and the Lord he says to them, your voice is like a song and a musical instrument. And they're just listening and enjoying, oh, wonderful Ezekiel. But they're still not doing a word you say. And then after they're crushed again, they'll realize, wow, he really was a prophet that was once among us. This is kind of a bleak outlook. And we looked at this topic on Sunday. Um, you know, Ezekiel 33, 31 there, where it talks about uh, they were hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. And what, a, what an important thing for us to be careful about in our day, to not just be hearers only. Uh, if you missed that, I would remind you just to refresh that up. You might say, oh, I've already heard that one. But uh, it's just a, a somber challenge before us, uh, what we have to be careful about. Chapter 34, um, we have uh, a presentation of the false shepherds, uh, and then we have a presentation of the future perfect shepherd. Uh, Let's take a look here. It says in chapter 34, verse 1, "'The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves.'" Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye that eat the fat and ye clothe, uh, and you clothe you with wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. Question, you know, we know, just kind of fast forward, Jesus is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, um, you know, of, of the New Testament. But as it turns out, there are under shepherds, the Bible talks about, and it's always interesting to me um, that pastors are kind of called in the Bible, uh, uh, feeders of the flock, or or shepherds, under shepherds. Um, what is the number one job for a shepherd? It's to, as it says here, they're to feed the flock. Be feeders of the flock. Anybody want to take a stab? What is the New Testament equivalent of a shepherd feeding the flock as it relates to the congregation? Anybody? It's the Word of God. That's why it's so tragic. I think there are people starving, and they don't even know it in, in a lot of Christianity today, because you know, they might tack a, a verse on the wall and say, oh, here's a Bible verse. Um, but, but the people are hungry for the word of God. And one thing that we're seeing as the times are getting darker, you, you wanna know what we're starting to see right now. And especially through this, you know, um, coronavirus year, past year and all this stuff, the churches that are suddenly booming are the ones that are actually teaching the Bible. Solid Bible teaching churches. A lot of the fluffy churches, most of them closed, closed down because they were horrified and a fear of the coronavirus and all this stuff. Um, and, um, and, and, and really um, the, the churches that kind of said, you know what, we're gonna keep sticking to teaching the word and we're not gonna let up on that charge. Those churches are flourishing right now by huge amounts. Uh, there's a church down in California that was at 5,000 when they started. Now there's like 18,000 in the past year because the pastor's just teaching the Bible. John MacArthur is down there teaching the Bible. He's an 80-something-year-old guy. He's just kind of opened the doors of the church down there, and people are just piling in because people are... He, he, MacArthur's not like a real warm, fuzzy little dude. Um, <laughs> But man, he does teach the word, you know, and people are hungry for this. And I think that's what's happening with AC Creek and why we're doing five services uh, live here and and the online thing is blowing up. It's because people are hungry for the word. And and any word to pastors out there, if you're wondering what you need to do, feed the flock. Feed the flock, give them the word of God. Don't just give little uh, sermonettes for Christianettes. Um, I remember one time Tad and I were really hungry and we heard there was this good restaurant in, in Ashland and we were driving through Ashland after a, a long camp and we went into this restaurant and they served, it was one of those little service uh, you know, dinners, it was real fancy uh, and whoever gave me the advice to go there, um, well, they should be put in prison. Um, <laughs> Tad and I sat down, and they served this little meal, and I thought, like, what is this, like communion? Like, it's like, uh, it's like this little tiny, tiny little piece of meat, and um, true story, asked Tad this, we ate there and paid way too much for this little communion meal, and then we, um, then we went to McDonald's afterwards, uh, because we were still hungry. Um, I think there's a lot of Christians that are hungry, and they go away on a Sunday uh, I just go, man, it's hungry. Uh, and and, and uh, man, we need to eat the meat of the word and we need to be fed. So the problem with the shepherds that, that Ezekiel's talking about is they were not feeding the flock, verse three, but you feed not the flock. Verse four, the diseased have you not strengthened. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became meat to all the beasts of the field. And when they were scattered, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every hill, every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. What's the flock of God? In this case, the Jews. Where were they scattered? All over the world, it's called the diaspora. We're getting these echoes of what, the, you know we're getting ready to dive headfirst into here in a few chapters, the regathering of the Jews and the breathing of life back into Israel and the rebuilding, this is gonna be exciting. This is just kind of you know, echoes of the scattering of the Jews. He's reminding us of what happened there. So verse six, my sheep have wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill, yea, my flock was scattered upon the face of the earth. None did search or seek after them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, neither did my my shepherd search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and fed not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves anymore for I will deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be meat for them. Um, How do you know a wolf? Um, You know a wolf in sheep's clothing by what it eats. I mean, if if there's someone who's in ministry that's eating uh, off the sheep or, you know, uh, you know, making their own thing fuller or wealthier or happier or whatever, and they're fleecing the flock and eating the sheep. Um, man, that should be a red flag. I remember in the, you know, 80s, the televangelists were being exposed, fortunately, because there were guys with mansions all over the, the you know, the world, and Rolls Royces and jets, private jets, um, you know, and that, that still happens today, uh, sadly. Um, but these guys just getting totally, you know, filthy rich, off of off of the ministry and off the sheep. Um, that's kind of what was going on these days, not in a televangelist way, but the guys that should have been shepherding, they were only eating off the sheep. You know, what, what was in it for them and not caring about the sheep at all. Uh, we have to watch out for that. You know a, a wolf by what it eats and that's what was going on here. Now you see in verse 11 and onward, the future shepherd, it says, In verse 11, for thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I will both search my sheep and seek them out. I love this. God is giving us something huge here. He's saying, I'm gonna be the shepherd, God says. And what what would Jesus become? The good shepherd who would leave the 99 and go find the lost sheep. Um, This is an idiom both of you and I and Gentile world, but it was also an idiom for the lost sheep of Israel as they were scattered all over the world. Verse 12, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And that's what's happening right now. We're watching this prophecy come to life right in front of our eyes. Aren't you glad some of you were tangled up in the thicket on a dark and cloudy day and Jesus came and sought you out and saved you Man, I'm so thankful for that. I, I know some people in this room that have quite a story and you were headed for total doom, but the good shepherd found you and, and rescued you. I love that. Verse 13, I will, and I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places in the country. Now, pause for a second. I, I should have said this earlier. We saw the word mountains of Israel in verse 13. Also in chapter 33, verse 28, and the mountains of Israel shall become desolate. Um, The thing that you need to know about this is the mountains of Israel, and I've said this before, but you you gotta get this because this is gonna be a major key here in Ezekiel. Where where do we find the mountains of Israel? Anybody wanna take a stab at that one? It's the West Bank. Falsely called the West Bank, by the way. I I should tell you that right now. I don't even like calling it the West Bank because it's, it's got a political weirdness attached to that. By the way, if you want to read um, an, an outstanding book on, uh, on this topic of the West Bank and Jerusalem and the Arab-Israeli conflict, it's a book from a while back, but um, it's called The Mountains of Israel. It's, it's, a, it's a great work. Anybody here read The Mountains of Israel? Raise your hand. No one. Oh, man. Go to Amazon right now. You, can get it. you have my permission right now. Get on your phone. No, I'm just just kidding. But Norma Parrish Archbold is the author. And it's an outstanding book called The Mountains of Israel. And it it, um, perhaps might just be the best work on the uh, history of that region of the world. Along with, um, I've also recommended... this one's, by the way, a little easier reading than the other one I've talked about from Time Immemorial. Remember that book I've talked about before? How many of you guys have read that one, From Time Immemorial? Oh, good, three of you took my advice on that one. That's great. <laughs> um, but these, these are important themes. And, and and by the way, the mountains of Israel and the West Bank and all that, total modern day issues. And will also be a big player in the Gog-Magog invasion and uh, the, the tribulation period, like you don't want to be a tourist and not know what the mountains of Israel and the West Bank's all about. So that's why that reading of that might be helpful for you. But um, this is the topic at hand, is the, the, you know, the mountains of Israel and what have you. So he says in verse 14, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. That would be the West Bank, including Jerusalem uh, in that. Uh, verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. Question, what does a sheep, as an old shepherd myself, having Pierre, my 4-H lamb, um, what does a sheep need to be lying down? Well, it needs three things. It, it's, a, it's a little bit like a baby. Uh, what, what, what keeps a baby from crying in its crib? Well, you need to be fed, but you also have to have something to drink, water. So for a, for a sheep, you have to be fed and watered. But the third thing is you also have to be f- free from fear of an outside threat and sheep are extremely skittish and they're usually kind of looking around totally terrified for a lamb to lay down it has to be in a, uh, what is perceived to be a safe place and I love that because in both Psalm 23 you know um, this is what the Lord does as the good shepherd and it says that in verse 15 here I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down saith the Lord God I love that I will seek that which was lost and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will feed them with judgment. You know, the false shepherds that were getting fat on the sheep and eating the sheep, that's the idea. Verse 17, and as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will judge between the cattle and the cattle, the rams and the he goats. Um, By the way, verse 17 echoes Matthew 25 um, verses, uh, you know, like 31 through 46. It talks about the sheep and the goats judgment, um, if you want to kind of a cross-reference there. But verse 18, it's, uh, seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and uh, to have drunk the deep waters, but you must foul and residue with your feet, Uh, As for my flock, they that eat, uh, that pardon me, as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet. And they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, behold, I even I will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle. Because you have uh, thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till you have scattered them abroad." therefore will I save my flock and they shall no more be a prey and I will judge between cattle and cattle. This is the, the, the Old Testament description of the judgment of the sheep and the goats. How did the people of the nations treat the Jewish people? And this shoving with the shoulder a diseased people is what happened in the Holocaust, for example, when the Nazis were trying to eliminate the Jewish people altogether. Uh, the, the nations will be judged how they treated Israel, the Jews, the flock of God. Verse 23, I will set up one shepherd over them. Anyone take a guess who that one shepherd would be? Always the right answer, right? Jesus. Yeah, I will set up the one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David. Hey Brett, David's been you know, dead for a long time. How can David, anybody know the answer to that? Anybody? Jesus, yeah. Um, the Davidic covenant, right? It would be a son of David that would ultimately be the one to straighten everything out. And Jesus, of course, is a descendant of David himself. The everlasting throne of David is what it's called. So this is, again, Ezekiel in line with all the other passages of the Bible about this. Um, Even my servant David, he shall feed them, he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken it. So this is the Jesus of, you know, John uh, chapter 10, by the way. Um, The good shepherd, I'll just remind you what John 10, 14 through 16 says. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said, and he's talking about this fulfillment of Ezekiel. I am the good shepherd, my sheep, and I know my sheep, and I'm known of mine, as the Father knows me, even I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep of I which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be of one fold and one shepherd. Uh, who's, the, who's the other sheep that are not part of this fold of the Jews? The church of Jesus Christ. We get to be part of his fold too. I love how Jesus includes us here on this uh, John 10 description. So again, this is, I know that I'm probably sounding redundant here, but this is where the Bible is perfectly congruent. There's no, there's no passage. this contradicts another passage about Jesus the shepherd and the sheep and the Gentiles and the Jews. Like this is a fairly complicated world plan for all of eternity. And yet the whole Bible is consistent and perfect and all the little pieces and idioms and analogies and metaphors, they all fit perfectly. It's kind of an amazing thing. It's miraculous, uh, quite, quite truthfully. Um, But be that as it may, Jesus is the great shepherd uh, that's being talked about here. Verse 25, and I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause evil beasts to cease out of the land and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing and I will cause the shower to come down uh, in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. Does that sound pretty nice? Yes or no? Oh, good, good. I thought you were sleeping there for a second. Yeah, thank you. Showers of blessings, man. Remember the old hymn, Showers of Blessings? When do you suppose this is talking about? Anybody wanna guess? The millennial kingdom. That's basically verse 25. We know Jesus is the great shepherd even in our church age. And that sort of fits in verses 23 and 24. But pretty much from this point on, we're talking about the future millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ. And that's when the showers of blessings are gonna come to their fullness. Verse 27, and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit and the earth shall yield her increase and they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen neither shall the, the beast of the land devour them but they shall dwell safely and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise for them a plant of renown. Does anybody remember us talking about the plant, the branch? Um, Do you remember Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21? We talked about the net's the branch. This again is Jesus, the plant, the branch of renown. Verse 29, I will raise for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen anymore. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord, their God, I um, am... With them, and they sh- uh, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God, and you are my flock, and the flock of my pasture are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. Man, I love just the redemptive nature of this. That God's got a plan for His people, even though they're in hot water presently during Ezekiel's time. Um, now, in chapter 35, we have a short little chapter here. Um, really. Uh, about Seir, which is another name for Edom. And we've already done kind of the curses upon Edom. The only thing I'm gonna say about this chapter as we read through it is um, some Bible prophecy buffs believe this could be something futuristic still about the land of Edom. Um, and we don't know really, there's not a lot of clarity on this, but the land of Edom, uh, the Idumean people, uh, and the land of Seir, it starts from Mount Nebo and goes all the way down to Aqaba. Um, now the reason I say that, if you've been to Israel with me, we did a road trip uh, at nighttime. It was it was a long, tedious night drive. We we hiked through Petra all day. Um, wait, is that right? Hold on. We we went to Mount Nebo. Uh, then we drove really long at night. Then the next day we hiked through Petra and then we drove another length after Petra and got down to Aqaba. And that whole stretch is the, the land of uh, Idumea or the Edomites or the land of Seir, okay? So we've been through that this region and, and that some believe that that area is gonna play a role prophetically. We know that it's probably the place where Petra is that the Jews are gonna flee in the last days. But how that ties into this, don't know, but that's what scholars, they wonder about this mysterious chapter 35. Let's read it. It says, moreover the word of the Lord came unto me saying, um, son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, um, the synonym of Edom, and prophesy against it, and say unto it, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most des- desolate. By the way, that land is desolate today. Um, As it turns out, I will lay thy cities waste and thou shalt be desolate and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast a perpetual hatred and hast shed the blood of children of Israel by the force of the sword in the time of their calamity, in the time that their iniquity had an end. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will prepare thee unto blood and blood shall pursue thee. Saith, uh, 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 thou shalt not hate blood, pardon me, not hated blood, um, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passeth out and him that returneth. Um, so interesting, you could almost say this all has taken place because much of this description is kind of the way it sits today. Um, and the Jordanians, which is the you know, part of this area of, of Edom, the Jordanians were part of the uh, war on Israel when Israel became a nation in 1948. And they've been pretty desolate and it's a wild country. As soon as we cross the border from Israel into Jordan, people go, man, we ain't in Kansas anymore. Uh, like it, it's, it's definitely way third world country, uh, not, not an easy place to hang out. Um, last time we were there, uh, we all got sick from something, I think that we ate in uh, that region, which is kind of what happens when you go to uh, those third world countries sometimes. Um, but all that to say, um, uh, verse eight, I will fill his mountains with his slain men, and in thy hills." Uh, pardon me, verse seven. Is that where I was? Verse what? Verse eight, "And I will fill his mountains with his slain men, in thy hills and in thy valleys, and in all thy rivers." They shall fall that are slain by the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations and the cities shall not return. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast said, these two nations, probably Arab-Israeli nation, these two nations, the Arabs and Israelis. um, And these two countries shall be mine. And we will possess it. Whereas the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord and that I have heard all thy blasphemies which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel. There it is again. Saying, they are laid desolate, they are given us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Thus saith the Lord God, when the whole earth rejoiceth, I will make thee desolate as thou didst rejoice at the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate. So I do unto thee, thou shalt be desolate, O Mount Seir. And all I do even all of it, and they shall know that I am the Lord." So mysterious, is it, is it something that's already happened or is it something that's yet to happen? And even more mysterious, as it turns out, there's other prophecies that say after the Jews flee to Jordan, the Lord's gonna bless the land of Jordan. Uh, so there's a blessing in the future, uh, as it turns out. Now, um, here's what I'm gonna do, and I know you're gonna panic here for a second, but um, this curse against Edom continues in chapter 36 all the way to verse 15. Um, if you look it up in most of your commentaries and scholars, they say that it was an unfortunate chapter break. They probably should. Now, before you get all hot and bothered about this, remember the chapters were added many, many centuries after the Bible was written. And some of the chapter breaks are just unfortunate. Um, and in the chapter 36 probably should start in verse 16, because that's where we really begin some new and exciting stuff but it still curses on Edom in the first half of this chapter. So let's finish up the uh, curse of Edom. And that sets us up for next week for some of the more exciting stuff. Let's finish it up. Verse one, also thou son of man prophesy unto the mountains of Israel and say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God against the enemy um, hath said against you, aha, even the ancient high places and ours in possession. Therefore prophesy again, and say, thus saith the Lord God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side that you might be a possession unto the residue of the heathen and you are taken up in the lips of talkers and are an infamies of the people or infamy of the people. Therefore, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys, to the desolate wastes and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and a derision, to the residue of the heathen that are round about. Um, therefore, thus saith, the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Idumea. That's Jordan, uh, Edom, that's, that's the place. By the way, Idumea and Edom means red. And the Lord's pl- doing a play on words. You miss it in the English here. There's a play on words on blood and you're gonna be like blood. Um, and the Lord's doing a play on words in the Hebrew. You kind of miss it here. But Idumea, Edom means red. Um, so against all I Idumea, middle verse five, which has appointed my land into their possession with the joy of their heart, with despiteful minds to cast it out for a prey. Prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel and say unto the mountains and to the hills, to the rivers, to the valleys, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury because you have borne the shame of the heathen. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I have lifted up mine hand. Surely the heathen that are about you, they they shall bear their shame. So all the mountains around Israel, the nations around, they're gonna bear the shame. Verse eight, but you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people uh, of Israel for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it, and the cities shall be inhabited, and the waste shall be builded. Again, this is a beautiful prophecy here about what the Lord's doing right now. Israel's being builded and safe and fruitful. All of this is being uh, prepping us for chapter. Uh, uh, the, the last part of this chapter, chapter 36 is where the second part is where we really start getting into what the Lord plan uh, is planning right now for Israel. It's really exciting. So um, uh, verse 11, I will multiply you um, man and beast, they shall increase that bring fruit and I will settle you after your old estates and will do better unto you than your beginnings and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yea, I will cause men to walk up, uh, upon you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess thee, and thou shalt be their inheritance, and thou shalt no more henceforth bereave them of, uh, of men. Thus saith the Lord God, because they say unto you, thou land devourest up men, and hath bereaved my, thy nations. Therefore thou shalt devour men no more, neither bereave thy nations any more, saith the Lord God. Neither will I cause men to hear in thee the shame of the heathen any more neither shalt thou bear the reproach of the people anymore, neither shalt thou cause thy nations to fall anymore, saith the Lord God." Boy, if you go to Israel, one of the things you see is the Jews bearing the shame of the nations, even right now, and that's yet to be really fully seen. Um, One example of this is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Um, And it's quite a sight to behold. You got all these Jews, you know, praying fervently at the Wailing Wall, And you understand the Western Wall, what is is it a Western Wall of? It's the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. If you can look at Jerusalem, it's sort of a hillside. They built the Temple Mount upon the top of the mountain and built these huge walls during Solomon's era, huge walls that made it into a flat top of a mountain, which is called the Temple Mount. And the walls that surrounded that, that they kind of filled in, that became a huge area. Well, um, today, you know, they've dug archaeologically down, and you can see these walls, these ancient walls. But one section of the Western Wall is showing. And they've dug deeper. Even in the last, you know, century, they keep digging down on the Western Wall. But um, but the, the Muslims who control the Temple Mount say, you Jews have to stay down there. The, they, they don't want the Jews to be up on the Temple Mount. So they forced them to be praying just down in this little tiny Western wall. And the, the Muslims with their wala, wala, wala. It's like a Radio Shack speaker, you know, that they got. It's like. And it's going all over the Jerusalem. And it's very oppressive, it really is. It's just, you know, I, I remember when uh, our president, um, Barack Hussein Obama said, oh, the Muslim call is such a beautiful sound. I'm like, man, uh, I, I just can't agree at all. Uh, <laughs> when I was staying in Petra one time uh, with a buddy, um, we had this cheap hotel where it didn't have any bunks, it just had a dirt floor, and you had to kind of sleep on the floor. So we were kind of having a rough night, but at 4 or 12 in the morning, it was still dark outside, you know, we're just going, kind of like, oh man. But um, it's, it, you have to understand there's a spiritual oppressive darkness. And you see these, the Muslims up on the Temple Mount going, ha we have the Temple Mount and the Jews being forced to be shamefully down on the Western wall. It's, it's, it's hard to even articulate. You have to kind of see it with your own eyes. That's what it's talking about. You'll no longer be the shame of the nations in Jerusalem and on the West Bank, on the mountains of Israel. Those days are coming to a close and that's gonna be when Christ comes. And that's why all the Arab-Israeli conflict is so festering right now, but it's gonna be fixed when Jesus comes. Um, And that's what we're setting the stage for now. The second half of Ezekiel 36 is the rich uh, stuff. And we might even dive into some of that on Sunday because I don't want our Sunday crowd to miss it. So there you have it. Hey, we covered some ground tonight, praise the Lord. And we're gonna get into some good stuff here uh, next week. Lord, how thankful we are for your word that's living and powerful. And I pray Lord that um, you would put a peace upon Jerusalem. You tell us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem for they shall prosper that love thee. Lord, we do want Jerusalem to do well. We know ultimately that means for you to return to rule and reign from Jerusalem. But until then, may we be busy about the kingdom, being watchmen on the wall, clearly sounding the trumpet. Lord, I pray your church would be more effective. The greater church would be more effective in just declaring truth boldly, without shamefacedness. Lord, give us a boldness, but a love and a kindness, um, a compassion, but a strong boldness to declare your truth, Lord. Um, I pray that more and more churches would see the folly in some of this progressive Christianity that we're seeing um, and, and new, really new uh, thoughts that are just old, old thoughts, new age uh, that's creeping into the church and false teaching and false doctrine. Lord, I pray that there'd be more and more people that would be sticklers to your word and that we would be taught in scripture well. Lord, may a revival happen in these dark days. We do see throughout history when the, when the things got darker, the church seemed to get stronger. So I pray that your church would flourish in these days, that the lines would be drawn and that the faithful would, would stand firm on your word. So bless these, your people tonight. Bless those that are at home or online right now. May they just sense your, um, they're just the blessing of having gone through some scripture tonight and may it bring forth good fruit in our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.